Morning, everybody online. My name is Brian, if we haven't met, and actually really excited to share with you this morning. Um, uh, this morning, we're going to do a little bit of a bridge talk. Um, we're going to finish up uh, a series that we've been in the last few months, and then we're actually going to be looking ahead to something new that we're starting. So I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, a little later in the message. So over the last few months, we've been in this series that we've called Living the Future with this big idea. Uh, that the more that we can grasp how the story of Scripture and similarly how the story of humanity ends, uh, the more that we're going to gain traction uh, in our lives right now. As we learn to live uh, in the present according to what's true about the future, that begins to get more and more traction in our lives right now. And so week by week, we've been asking God to help us experience today what Revelation 21 talks about, about the end, where everything is set back into God's original design, where every tribe and tongue and nation are worshiping God, and where there's no more death, there's no more sorrow, no more pain, all has been made right again. Again, that is where things are going, and what we want to do is say, God, would you just front load that kind of experience into our experience right now, here and now in 2023. It's been a really encouraging series, full of good news. Um, unfortunately, I want to add in uh, some challenging news. You guys are like living through the worst winter in recorded history, so you're used to challenges. Uh, here's the challenging news for you this morning. Uh, you are prone to amnesia. I don't know if you knew that. Maybe you forgot, you know? <laughs> that was really good. That wasn't even in my notes. I'm so good at dad jokes that it just came. You guys have been praying for me, haven't you? <laughs> praying that I quit doing dad jokes. <laughs> okay, no, seriously, you are prone to amnesia. It's not that you're going to forget your name or where you live, but actually here's the kind of amnesia that you get. It's what author and pastor Paul David Tripp calls identity amnesia. I've actually been using a devotional that Tripp wrote. I listened to this section from one of the entries from just a little bit uh, earlier this week, actually. Okay, so he writes this. You and I are always assigning to ourselves some kind of identity. And the things that you and I do are shaped by the identity that we have given ourselves. So it's important to acknowledge that God has not just forgiven you, and that's a wonderful thing, but he's also given you a brand new identity. If you are God's child, you are now a son or a daughter of the king. You are in the family of the Savior, who is your friend and your brother. You are the temple where the, the Spirit of God now lives. Yes, it is, really is true that you have been given a radically new identity. The problem, sadly, is that many of us live in a regular state of identity amnesia. We forget who we are, and when we do, we begin to give way to doubt and fear and timidity. Identity amnesia makes you feel foolish when, in fact, you are in a personal relationship with the one who is wisdom. It makes you feel unable when, in fact, you've been blessed with strength. It makes you feel alone when, in fact, the Spirit lives inside of you. You feel unloved when, in fact, you have been graced with the Father's eternal love. You might feel like you don't measure up when, in fact, the Savior has measured up on your behalf. But God didn't walk away from you. Instead, he invaded your life as Father and Savior and Helper. By his grace, he has made you part of his family. And by his grace, he has made you the place where he lives. 
Okay, here's the deal. Without intentionality, we are all prone to forget. We can all lose track of the amazing new identity that is available to us through Christ. In the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today, this is something that the Apostle Paul was challenging the Ephesian Christians about. He was entreating them, remember who you are. Don't forget. Don't forget the new identity that Christ has given to you. Okay, so let's look at what Paul writes. Um, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, let's begin in verse 11. Paul says, don't forget. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises that God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down this wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from these two groups. And together as one body, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. And now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Verse 19, now you Gentiles, so now you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. And together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. For through him, you Gentiles are being made a part of this dwelling where God himself lives by his spirit. Really rich stuff. We could spend a whole lot of time on this. Uh, so much that we want to cover. But today, here's what we want to look at. These are truths that the Apostle Paul was trying to remind the Ephesians about. It's things that we need to grasp as well. That we have a constant need to recalibrate an understanding of who we are in Christ and what that means for us, both individually and also for us uh, together. Okay, so if it's true that we're all prone to this bit of identity amnesia, what's really important for us to remember? There's three key things that we see in today's passage, okay? We see that we're no longer foreigners, we're now citizens. We're no longer strangers, we're now members of God's family. We're no longer homeless, but together we are God's house. Okay, so Paul uses these three images very deliberately, and each one is more intense than the one before it. Let's look at each one of these in a little bit more detail. So first of all, this first one, we are no longer foreigners, we are now 
citizens. First metaphor that Paul uses here is the image of a nation, that, that we are made up. There's this nation that's made up of us as God's people. And in Ephesians, he was writing to Gentiles who had become followers of Jesus, but they were still in this spot where they were still feeling a lot like outsiders. Author Peter O'Brien explains a bit more. He says, Paul's Gentile readers had previously been foreigners and aliens in relationship to God's people, uh, Israel. Uh, But Christ's work had changed all of that, and their status had dramatically changed. Now they belong in a way that they never did before. They're neither homeless nor even second-class citizens in someone else's homeland. Instead, they become fellow citizens, fellow citizens with the saints, And these Gentile Christians now have a homeland. They belong as fellow citizens with the rest of the believers in that heavenly commonwealth, the kingdom of God, ruled by God. Okay, so you think about this. It doesn't take a PhD to realize that there's a real difference, a practical difference, life experience of someone that's a foreigner and someone that is a citizen. And there's a security that a citizen has that a foreigner may never experience. I was thinking about this the other day, and I thought, I wonder like, what the actual citizenship process is. So I went to the, the website for the U.S. citizenship. I want you to listen to this opening paragraph where they talk about this process. So citizenship is a common thread that connects all Americans. Uh, we're a nation bound not by race or religion, but by shared values of freedom, liberty, and equality. Citizenship offers many benefits and equally important responsibilities. By applying for citizenship, you're demonstrating your commitment to this country and our form of government. Isn't that interesting? What they're talking about is like even from a, um, a governmental standpoint in our nation that citizenship includes new rights and privileges, but also key responsibilities. Check with me a little bit, because we'll see some of the correlations for what that means with us in our citizenship as children of God. So it includes new rights and privileges, but also key responsibilities and even a commitment to that. Another story, the other day I had a a chance to talk with a a friend uh, that went from this, uh, had about a 10-year journey uh, coming to the U.S. as an immigrant to then eventually becoming a U.S. citizen. Uh, He was telling me a little bit about how on the front end of his experience, there was just a ton of isolation and really feeling like an outsider. He didn't speak much English when he first arrived, uh, and so there was a huge language barrier. But there was also all of these cultural barriers that he had um, to face. Um, As the years went on, as he approached uh, 10 years of being here in the States, many things changed. He He had learned English, become fluent in that. Um, He had adjusted to a number of the customs of upper Midwest, northern Minnesota, even though he didn't really like some of them. Um, And then he made the decision to apply for citizenship. In his case, he was able to become um, a U.S. citizen and also still be a citizen of his home of origin, his country of origin. Many ways, my experience, uh, the experience of my friend is like what we experience in our lives when we think about um, this yielding to God and the commitment that we make. It's a similar picture to what we're invited into as Christians. We're dual citizens, even though they're not exactly equal. Okay, so like for me, I'm a U.S. citizen, 
But first and foremost, I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. I'm grateful to be an American, but my ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme uh, in his letter to the Philippians. He writes this in Philippians 3.20. He says, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. So my friend, he had this change in status that happened. He went from being an immigrant with a green card to a citizen with a passport. He was granted new freedoms, like the ability to vote and run for elected office, but he was also charged with new responsibilities. There was this higher accountability to the laws of the land, and this reality that he could be called on to serve on a jury, or maybe even uh, be called on to serve in defending our country. Yeah, talk about this correlation. Again, similarly, in the kingdom of God, as citizens of the kingdom, there is freedom. We are no longer slaves to sin. Rather, we are free to live as sons and daughters of King Jesus. But with our freedom, we also have these specific responsibilities. You know, we're to live in alignment with God's kingdom, you know, and to serve Jesus in all that we do. And as citizens of heaven, we're also his representatives. We're his ambassadors. This temporal world may not be our ultimate homeland, but we're called right now right here for a divine purpose. So again, for my friend, there were steps that he took to become a citizen of the U.S. The cool thing about becoming a citizen of heaven is ultimately not based on what you have done. It's based on what's been done for us. There's something I love about this section in Ephesians. At the end of each paragraph, as Paul finishes illustrating each metaphor, he uses a summary statement. And so this first question, how do we go from being foreigners to citizens? Here's what Paul writes in verse 13b. Would you read this aloud with me? Let's read this together. Once we were far away from God, but now we have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. It's not because you've got the right last name or that you grew up in the best neighborhood. It's not because you did all the right things and you performed to this optimum level. No, the way into becoming a citizen of God's kingdom is simply by embracing what's been done for you by Jesus. As we recognize that, as we recognize what Jesus has done through his death and his resurrection, as we yield to him and his authority, there's amazing power that comes. There's amazing access. There's amazing freedoms that are there that once we were far away, but now we have been brought near. We've been brought near, and it's through the blood of Christ that we enter in to this brand new status, this new identity, rather than being foreigners, we are now citizens of the kingdom of God. Okay, that's the first item. We can shift from being foreigners to being citizens. Here's the second metaphor uh, that's used here in Ephesians 2. It's that of family. Okay, so first one's about being a nation of God's people. Second one is about being a family. We remember that the church is not an organization to join, ultimately, but it's a family where you can belong. It's a place where you have brothers and sisters in Christ. And because of Jesus, here's the second thing that we see. We are no longer strangers. We are now members of God's family. 
We'll talk more about family in a moment. Um, listen again to verse 12, uh, which describes our starting point. Uh, I want to read this time from the uh, ESV translation, verse 12. At that time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's a stark statement, isn't it? I mean, pick up the different things that are separated, alienated. You're strangers, without hope and without God in the world. That's how Ephesians 2 describes what life is like outside of a real relationship with Christ. I think back to how today's passage began in verse 11. Paul wrote, he says, don't forget, don't forget that you were once outsiders. Here's a question for you. Are there times in your life where you felt like an outsider? Times like that before. I remember for myself, um, a real seminal experience of that uh, was in 2009. I got invited to go on a missions trip to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. And for me, it was my first extended time period of being either a racial or a cultural minority. Um, and so it was a big thing to adjust to. Um, you know, it was a powerful lesson for me to realize, holy cow, this is what, what I'm experiencing right now is what countless people experience every single day of their lives. Huge piece of humble pie, particularly for me to swallow as a middle-class white man. Another significant experience for me on that trip was how these brand new Mexican friends expressed hospitality to me. They bridged the gap between us and they made a way, intentionally made a way for me to belong. Mario, the pastor of the church, is bilingual and so he would translate what was being said so I could understand what they were saying and they could understand what I was saying. But it wasn't just the language barrier. There were huge cultural things that I didn't get. And even the friends that didn't speak any English, they were like helping me along. You know, they were helping me adjust to this way of life and helping me to find a place. Man, those experiences, it just felt like this little taste of heaven. I felt so amazingly loved, even with these folks that I had no way of communicating with at that time. I felt incredibly loved. I went from being a stranger to belonging because they went to such great extents to make a place for me in their wider family. It was a huge, you know, significant experience for me in my life. It was an exciting thing. What they did for me 14 years ago is something that we can do for others in our lives. We can step into any of the gaps that might be there. We can express that love and that generosity and that hospitality, and we can help to close that gap in many ways where folks might be feeling like an outsider, a stranger, and say, well, just come on in. You can be part of the family. In fact, this is one of my ongoing dreams for us as a church, that we could extend this kind of radical welcome to countless people, that others could have the same taste of heaven that I experienced all these years ago, that they could feel this kind of love as we bridge gaps for them. I mean, isn't this what Jesus did for us? Like, that's where our example is. That's where the power is, that Jesus bridged the ultimate divide. When we were without God, without hope, Jesus closed the gap with his death 
in his resurrection. This is what we marked last week, right? That he made a way for us to come back to God. He bridged that divide. He made us a way that we could have access to God our Father. There's actually a two-dimensional impact of Christ's work on our behalf, already pointing to the first one. There's this vertical dimension that because of Christ, we can be reconciled to God. Uh, early in this chapter, Paul points to the extravagance of God's kindness in rescuing us from sin and, and bringing us into this reconciled relationship with him. Uh, during communion, I read a little bit from Romans 1, which puts it so clearly that we can have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. And in Ephesians 2.13, we read this, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. We go from being strangers to being connected. Now, many of us today have already embraced this reality of being reconciled to God. But if you have not yet, man, this is what he makes available to us. He makes available to me, he makes available to you. This whole thing of Christianity isn't about like having a laundry list of rules that we follow, although there are things that are good for us and things that are not. <laughs> it's ultimately about being welcomed into a real relationship with God, the creator, and being welcomed into a family of other brothers and sisters. Because of what Jesus has done, you can go from being separated from God to being united with him. You can discover deep peace. You can discover this deep peace where you never knew that before. And you can experience God's grace and his forgiveness no matter what you have done. And that is available to every single one of us. And it's because of Christ's work on our behalf. Okay, so there's this vertical dimension of what Jesus has done, implications of that, but there's also this horizontal one. This is actually something that the Apostle Paul spends a lot of time on here in Ephesians 2, that because of Christ, we can actually be reconciled to one another. There's this way that Christ brings peace between all the peoples, okay? Did you notice in verses 14 and 18 how he uses uh, repeated use of the word hostility? Holy cow, that's a loaded word. <laughs> the most prominent context of Ephesians 2 was the ethnic and cultural and religious divisions that were so prominent um, during the first century between Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. But the principles of Christ bringing reconciliation between people can apply to any kind of relationship. One commentator described it this way. He said, Jesus has brought together people who had been hopelessly at odds with one another and with God. But Christ has become our peace, drawing together and reconciling that which had been estranged. So we got a loaded word of hostility. Here's another one, estranged. Wow, that is a powerful, powerful word. When we use that, most often we're talking about strained or broken relationships, right? Like we're saying, like, a husband's estranged from his wife, or a young adult's estranged from their family, you know? And, uh, and so there's really pain. There's pain there. There's, there's heartache. There's, there's division, you know? And, and probably all of us in our lives have experienced some level of that, of the brokenness of sin and betrayal or just disappointment, this real sense of estrangement. But what Paul's pointing to here in Ephesians 2 is that 
because of Christ, we can actually experience reconciliation to one another. And it takes a little while for that to go from like nice theory, <laughs> that sounds really nice, but we actually wouldn't really know that this is, it can be immensely practical, especially as we connect like these vertical and these horizontal implications of what Jesus has done. Let me share this example. Um, in the work of pastoring, um, one of the things that I get a regular chance to do is to work with couples. Um, so whether it's a couple that's getting married, I've got a uh, wedding I'm doing in a few weeks, and so I've been meeting with this couple, not, helping, not only helping them get ready for their ceremony, but also helping them prepare for this life of marriage. Um, but also I get a chance to meet with couples that are already married and maybe are going through uh, some difficulties there. One visual I often use with couples is that of a triangle. And um, here's how I use this. Often when a couple gets stuck, it's because of these things where they're just button heads, okay? You've experienced this before. It's like he did this or she didn't do this, and they're just like going at it like this, okay? But I use this visual of a triangle. Rather than the couple being at the base of the triangle and just going at it between them, that they make this shift of pointing <laughs> to the point. Imagining God at the, the point of that triangle, of being able to turn from just fighting it out with one another and looking to God to be a resource to them that they don't have access to just all on their own. And it's been so interesting as I've used that visual and even just like drawing a triangle or do it with my fingers, how often I've seen couples just kind of like just have this, just like, oh man, boy, that's what I need. <laughs> man, we have just been fighting it out. We've been stuck. But then just like realize how practical this is that if we are able to do this way of like turning vertically to God, there's some help, there's healing, there's hope, there's reconciliation that he can give us access to that we don't have if we're just trying to solve it on our own. Okay, so that's one example in like a marriage relationship. But again, you can apply this to so many other areas of life, so many other relationships, okay? That if we're just trying to battle it out with one another, boy, that's going to be really frustrating. But if we can connect with the reconciliation that Jesus has made available to us with God, and then how that fuels into this reconciliation that we can have with one another, there's real hope, there's real power in that. We can really, really lean into that. Okay, I want to be clear, though. It's, it's important to acknowledge that this work of reconciliation is not just like a snap of the fingers, you know? There's often work and time, significant time, that are needed for true reconciliation to take place, particularly if there's been a substantial hurt. You don't just slap a Jesus-labeled Band-Aid on a significant wound and just call it good. Like there's real work that all the parties involved really have to come to the table with. That's where real reconciliation happens. But thank God, like that's what he invites us into as we turn to him, as we look towards that and find that hope with one another. This is good news that so much of the heavy lifting has already been done. Look again at uh, verses 14 and 16. It says that Christ himself has brought peace to us. In his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separate us. And by means of his death on the cross, the hostility, our hostility towards each other was put to death. Isn't that vivid? It wasn't just like he said, oh, we'll just kind of 
shove it under the rug. No, he like went right at it. Jesus stood right in the middle of the hostility that was between real human beings. And he says, I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to bury it in the grave so you can experience deep peace in your relationships with one another. He absorbs that hostility. He puts it to death so that we can move towards reconciliation with one another. And as I'm talking about this, you might even be thinking about people in your life where you feel some of that estrangement, maybe even that hostility. Now, I'm not guaranteeing that like just one sermon or even like one prayer is just going to fix that. But what I do know is that if you turn towards Jesus, and particularly if that other person or that other group, whatever, like if there's a common way that you're looking to something outside of yourself, there can be traction and there can be hope. Um, that's what we want to look for. Okay, again, thinking about the second main point. How do we go from being strangers to being family? Let's read this second summary statement aloud together. This is in verse uh, 18. Let's read this together. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. That's where our hope is, friends. You know, that's where we long for. And again, where do you long for that? Where do you long for that sense of family for yourself? And where might God be inviting you to be that agent of hospitality and generosity towards other people? Okay, let's go on to our third path. Um, recap, through Jesus, we can go from being foreigners to being citizens. We're not strangers anymore. We're members of God's family. Here's the third key item, that we are no longer homeless but together we are God's house. Read verse 20 again. Uh, it says, together, together we are his house. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. I want to call to your remembrance something I touched on briefly at the beginning of the message. Paul uses three different images in this passage, and each one he deliberately um, gives increasing intensity to it. Okay? Each one gets more intense in, in regards to our relationship with God. Think about it. A king lives in a country with his people. That's the first metaphor. But a father lives under the same roof with his children. <laughs> And in the temple, God actually dwells there. He doesn't just live near the stones. He lives with them. And similarly, it's, it's each one goes more intense in regard to our relationship with one another. If you are co-citizens, you might still live miles and miles apart from other people. But if you're a brother and a sister, you might live only a few feet from those other people that are in your same family. And even more intense, if you are stones in a building... There's no distance at all. Apostle Paul talks about how we're like joined together. We're cemented with one another. That's what it looks like to be connected in the way. And so these pictures that Paul's using, he's trying to help us to get understand, help us to understand the identity that we have in Christ and what that means for our relationships with one another. The Greek word that's used here in verse 20 is oikos. Uh, it's actually a mixed metaphor, all in one word. Paul says that we're God's house, but really what he's talking about is that we're God's household together. He's not literally referring to a physical structure, but he's pointing to the structures and the systems of our inner connectedness. 
And this is how it's all built together. Verse 20 says, you know, Jesus is the cornerstone. The foundation is the words and the works of the apostles and the prophets. And then for you and I, all of us, we're added to this structure. We're joined together, becoming this temple for the Lord. I love how in this passage, uh, Paul, right at the very end, he includes this word together three different times. I think that's really purposeful. Like that you and I are not just floating around, you know, waiting for heaven all on our own. This journey of following Jesus is meant to be something that we do together. Just as the strength of any structure is in the points of intersection, you and I are the joints in this building. It's in our interconnectedness that we find strength for our lives. I mean, I wish that we could spend so much time. There's actually five different places in the New Testament that uses um, uh, this specific analogy of us being the temple of the the Holy Spirit or the temple of God. Um, And so if you want to go and do some of your own study on this, uh, you can look that up. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, Would love to spend some more time on that. But instead, in the few minutes that we've got left, here's the question that I want to focus on. Rather than the what... I want us to lean in on why. Why is it that we are being built together as God's temple? Friends, it's so that together we can become a place of God's habitation. We can become a place of God's presence. Rather than God dwelling in a physical building, God's place of residence is a group of people (laughs) together. Like us joined and knitted with one another. That is the place that God comes. Psalm 133 says that, you know, that blessed are those, you know, that are unity. Like the the whole thing, like that's where God's blessing is, where there's the unity of the faith. It's in us together as the church. This comes full circle to where we started this series all the way back in February. Again, we think about how the story of Scripture how the story of humanity ends. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God will be with him. Himself will be with them and be their God. This is where this is all going. That we can enjoy God's presence together. That that would bring life and hope and healing. Similarly, here's how Paul uh, talks about this at the close of Ephesians 2. This is our last summary statement. Let's read this together. We are carefully joined together in him becoming a holy temple for the Lord, a dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Friends, this is what we want to experience together. This is what we want to make available to others. We want to be a place. We want to be a people where God's spirit dwells, where God is thick, where God's amazement, like the wonder, the holiness, the glory, all of those things are so tangible. And that because of that, like real change can come to our lives and it can come to countless lives 
of people that we care about. That's the future that we want to start to live right now. I mentioned at the beginning of the message that um, I was kind of seeing today's talk as a bit of a bridge to finish up this series that we've been talking about with living the future, but also pointing ahead to some things that we're going to start talking about next week. It's this idea of God dwelling with us and in us by His Spirit. It brings up some other questions like, what does it look like when God really dwells among us with His Spirit? What are the practical effects of the Spirit's work in our lives? And what's the impact of the Spirit's work in others' lives as we extend out and we take risks to say, can I pray for you right now? Things like that. Those are the kinds of questions that we're going to dig into starting next week. We're going to be doing a um, six-week series about the Holy Spirit between now and uh, Memorial Day. It's going to be super fun looking at all the different things that the Holy Spirit does in and through our lives. The cool thing is, we actually don't have to wait <laughs> to experience that until next week. We can actually even invite that um, for us this morning. So we'll do that here in just a moment. Okay, turning back to our main thought for today. Here's where we started. Here's where we want to end. Understanding our identity, man, it shapes how we live. You and I are always assigning to ourselves some kind of identity. The things that we do, they're shaped by this identity that we've given ourselves. When we forget who we are, we can slip into doubt and fear and aimlessness. But if we grasp the identity that we have in Christ, it can solidify our relationship with God. It can bring healing to our relationships with other people. And that we can become together this powerful dwelling place for God's presence. That's God's heart for us, and that's what we so deeply long to have as well. We're going to pray for each other, as we usually do um, up front here in just a moment, but I actually had this little um, notion of wanting to finish our message today in this way. Um, during announcements, we prayed for another church. I felt like God said, how about we pray for our church <laughs> as well? And along these very same lines... To say, God, these things that we're talking about today, we just want to just have them be theory. Like, could we join together, like even just for a couple minutes, and say, God, would you make these practical realities in our relationships, in our midst, like that we could experience that ourselves, and also that we could be a place that a whole bunch of other folks could experience. You guys up for that? Okay, let's do a prayer that. God, we, we just so grateful for your promises. God, thank you for the ways that you have welcomed us right in. God, thank you for how we together can be your people. God, that we can be a family. And God, that you can just come by your spirit and dwell among us. So, God, we, did, we just pray for Duluth Vineyard Church. God, our church. God, would those things just be more and more true? God, even as we've been walking through such a difficult season and that there's a lot of difficulties ahead, God, we want to grasp on today again to this hope that you are with us, you are for us, And that, God, we can experience more and more of your precious presence <laughs> as we turn to you.
God, would you make us vessels? God, would you make us those kinds of people that fill in those gaps for others, that make room, and together that we can experience really good things from you. God, bless our church. Would you come, lead us as a church? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Why don't you go ahead and stand up? Pray a little bit for us as a whole, and as we go back into worship, we want to just offer praying for one another uh, individually as well. So if you're on our ministry team, you can start to make your way up. Uh, Worship team, wherever you guys are at, um, you can make your way uh, up here as well. And uh, there you guys are. Uh, And uh, we just want to be able to respond to God. I I think the the biggest word that was coming to my mind of thinking about us individually is this whole idea of recalibration of adjustment, you know, of, of reset. Um, and it can take so many different forms, you know, as we're talking about how easy it is for us to forget <laughs> who we are and what that means for us in our identity. There might be some things even this morning that God's just perking up for you, just saying, ah, oh, man, I've just been living out of something that isn't actually who I am. And so I just want to recalibrate. I want to ask for your help, God. I want, to, uh, I want to reset, you know, my priorities. I want to reset my heart in that. And so that's something that you can just bring before God. Um, it doesn't have to be a big, drawn-out thing, but it can just be a simple place where you're just turning from that and turning to Him. We also talked about uh, just the experience of um, strained relationships, Maybe you want to bring some things that just feel really hard. Could be in a marital relationship. Could be with a kid. Could be, you know, in a friendship or something even at work. Just turning towards God and saying, God, would you come with your spirit and just bring your help and your hope. This whole idea of recalibration, as I talked about, maybe today you're in a spot where you've never committed your life to Jesus and this hope and this freedom that that we're talking about, that's available to you, you say, like, I actually want that. As we go back into worship, um, our prayer ministry folks would love to be able to explain to you what it means uh, to, to begin a relationship with Christ uh, and everything there. And then finally, um, I just had this sense, uh, this last week, uh, in so many of our small groups, we're doing Alpha right now. Uh, this past week, we talked about healing, like physical healing, and there were some fun things that happened in small groups and just offering to pray folks that are dealing with physical items. And so we just want to make that available this morning as well. You know, if you've got something going on in your body, we just want to welcome the presence of God and just say, come Holy Spirit, bring your healing. So God, thank you again for your time. God, for this time that we've got to be in your presence, to worship you, to be family together. Would you come even more in your spirit, God, So we worship you and we pray for one another. pray that in Jesus' name, amen. They're going to lead us to more worship. Come up and get some prayer. Engage with God. Ah, Thanks so much for being here this morning at the Vineyard.